This podcast episode of Vatican U is brought to you by St. Joseph Shop of Batesville, Indiana. Find them on Facebook at St. Joseph Shop. St. Joseph Shop takes all recycled spiritual items, repairs rosaries, and can even build a rosary out of your grandmother's jewelry. And if you're fortunate enough to shop at the Batesville, Indiana store, expect to get sprinkled with holy water on your way out. Connect and ask questions at St. Joseph Shop on Facebook. Welcome, friends, to the Supernatural Reality Edition of Vatican U, our weekly walk through the teachings of the Church. We don't know if you found us on the airwaves, iTunes, or through Breadbox Media, sharing what you can need for this great adventure we call life. But we're glad you're with us for our walk through the Church all the same. On this week's show, we'll be discussing paragraphs 112 through 130 of Sacrosanctum Concilium from the Second Vatican Council, what it says and what we think, probably a whole lot of what we think, (laughs) and most importantly, how it all applies to real life. Later on, we'll be doing Two Sides of the Same Coin, a new segment, which we haven't tried before, uh, and we'll be discussing some of the things that go on in Advent, and at the end of our show, Father Jerry will get the last, last word. So now Yay. let me check. The- yes, absolutely. So uh, why don't we check in and see how we're all doing? Father Jerry, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Doing lies, lies. <laughs> They're all lies. <laughs> no, I, I've actually been kind of sick this past week, and today's the first day that I really felt uh, a little bit of pep in my step. So I'm doing pretty good. That is certainly good to hear. Father Allen, how are things going down in Lexington at the Newman Center? Things are awesome, although I'm, I'm going to go buy my train wreck insurance. You were, you were announcing that new segment that we're going to try, and I'm a little worried that things are going to veer off the track on that. But no, things are good here. It's a beautiful, crisp December day, and when we finish this recording, I'll head over to the vocations office. Our students are in good spirits, and uh, uh, so life is good. That's very good to hear. Father Sean, how are things down in your neck of the woods? Things are going pretty well. Advent's off to a great start. Um, I'm preaching a, a sermon series during Advent on basic catechesis on the Mass, and there's mm-hmm. been a lot of positive feedback so far. I'm really excited about it because sometimes I think we need to to step back and just look at some basic stuff again. And For example, one of the things I talked about was the symbolism of when you come into church using the holy water font, making the sign of the cross and what that means. And, and people are like, wow, I've done that my whole life, but I didn't realize that there was so much into it. So that's been a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to the next three weeks to talk about uh, the next, the remaining of the four principal parts of the Mass. So it's been good. Yeah. I'm excited. Neat time of the year to do it, too. I mean, that's a very Advent kind of thing to do, preparing for you know, preparation and anticipation and understanding the Mass a little better, and they, they'll hit Christmas maybe and appreciate it better. Great idea. Well, there were two things that caused me to think about it. One is that there are four weeks of Advent, and there are four principal parts of the Mass. Mm-hmm. So that seemed to line up pretty well. And then the second thing is mm. Advent and Lent are really busy for us as priests. You guys know that because we go to a lot of penance services to help hear confessions at all kinds of different parishes. And I had a whole bunch of material for talks on the Mass done already, so I thought, oh, I'll just recycle some old talks, fix them up a little bit, rework it, uh, but not start from scratch. So a little bit of it was self-serving on my part, I'll admit to that. Although the hit rate has gone down at Word on Fire, apparently, if you're doing something different for your homilies these days. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it has a little bit. There's been one less listener for the last couple of weeks. 
<laughs> but I'll be back. Don't worry. <laughs> Things are going well up here in the Diocese of Toledo. It's just now starting to snow, um, which is wonderful. It's a great indicator that winter is here. But none of the snow is sticking, so it still looks kind of like fall. But it's definitely getting towards my favorite time of the year, just being good and cold and wonderful. Does anybody have, have an elf on the shelf in their rectory? What? Does anybody have an Alan, elf on the I'm shelf sure in their rectory? The Those elves um, on the shelf things do some spooky stuff. Mm, I think they're like little, have, little creepy demon things. <laughs> I guess not using well, Facebook. I, I'm having a hard time following this. Oh. Well, I saw one recently where an Elsa doll had frozen the elf in the, on the shelf into a solid block of ice, and I thought that was pretty interesting. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay. Father Sean, and for those of our listeners that. that don't know anything about it, just when you have a little bit of time, go to Google and type in elf on a shelf and um, see some of the amazing things that people come up with that are creative. You'll love them. You'll love them. All right. I'll check that out. Not at night, though, because that might be a little creepy. <laughs> well, um, All right, well, Father Jerry, you've got the uh, opening prayer. All right, brothers, let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O God, who from living and chosen stones prepare an eternal dwelling for your majesty, increase in your church the grace you have bestowed, so that by unceasing growth your faithful people may build up the heavenly Jerusalem. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I know it sounds like we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but what if we give a shot at this two-minute drill and see if uh, I can put some people to sleep on the Internet and maybe they'll clean up our bandwidth a little bit. (laughs) So... This week on the on the Supernatural Reality Edition of Vatican U, we're looking at chapters 6 and 7 of Sacrosanctum Concilium. The last two chapters, <laughs> I'll never get through this two-minute drill without dying laughing if they don't sit, quit sending me text messages. Anyway, the last two chapters of Sacrosanctum <laughs> Concilium, where the Council Fathers conclude their reflections and directives on the sacred liturgy by commenting on sacred music, art, and furnishings. It seems like they're primarily reminding us that these things are not irrelevant afterthoughts, but rather really important and integral parts of divine worship. In these two chapters, they start by holding up the musical tradition of the church as a treasure of great value, more value even, they say, than any other art, because it forms a necessary part of the solemn liturgy. But note the Council Fathers here are not talking about just any old music that's used at Mass. Rather, they're specifically talking about the musical tradition of the universal church, and I'm sure that we'll have more to say about that later. They point out that throughout Scripture and throughout history of the church, from the church fathers all the way through the popes and through time, sacred music is in the service of the Lord, has found its place, and it is therefore to be retained. Pointing out that sacred music is more holy the more closely it is connected with liturgical action, the Council Fathers decree several things then. The treasury of sacred music is to be preserved and cultivated with great care, and that includes developing choirs that can be ministers of this sacred music, but also at the same time assuring that the faithful may be able to contribute their active participation that is rightly theirs in the singing of the sacred music. In fact, they tell us that special care must be taken to intelligently foster religious singing by the faithful, 
as part of our work in this area of the liturgy. The Council Fathers are also clear that Gregorian chant, because it is specially suited to our liturgy, should be given, in their words, pride of place in our public worship. They mention also that there should be room made for culturally rooted music as appropriate, a theme that we've heard earlier in the document, but also that the pipe organ is to be held in, in high esteem as the traditional musical instrument in our right because of its long use, and that other instruments that would be used in worship should only be used if they are suitable for sacred use, in accord with the dignity of the temple, and truly contribute to the edification of the faithful. They conclude by reminding us that texts that are sung in worship must always be in conformity with Catholic doctrine and should chiefly be drawn from sacred scripture and liturgical resources. Now, having read this whole document together, what the Council Fathers say about art and furnishings will be no surprise to us now, but it's no less important. They direct us toward expressing in some way the infinite beauty of God in our art, and that that art should always serve to turn men's minds devoutly toward God. Anything used in sacred spaces or for sacred services should be worthy, becoming, and beautiful, signs and symbols of the supernatural. They must serve the dignity of worship, bring reverence and honor to the sacred buildings and rites, and be suitable for the celebration of liturgical services and for the active participation of the faithful. This applies to sacred art and architecture, the design and structure of the buildings in which we worship, as well as the things in which, that we use to decorate and furnish these spaces. The Council Fathers offer four basic criteria that artists and artisans should keep in mind with regard to all these things. What they produce should be first fitted for Catholic worship, they should second contribute to the edification of the faithful, third they should foster piety, and finally they should be conducive to religious formation. There's our two-minute drill plus a little bit more. <laughs> Father Alan, you did a great job summarizing that, and I can't imagine a topic that's uh, not rift with more potential landmines of people's emotional connections <laughs> with music and with the, the design of their church. So I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation about this and hopefully not irritate too many people. Friends, you're listening to Vatican U, a weekly walk through the teachings of the church from Breadbox Media. If you want to join the conversation, search for the Vatican U Show on Facebook or find our blog at vaticanuradio.blogspot.com. Post your comments, share your questions, and be part of our walkly week, walkly week, <laughs> weekly walk, <laughs> weekly walk through the teachings of the church. Vatican U on Breadbox Media, sharing what you can need for this great adventure we call life. We'll be right back after this short break. This podcast episode of Vatican U is brought to you by St. Joseph Shop of Batesville, Indiana. Find them on Facebook at St. Joseph Shop. St. Joseph Shop takes all recycled spiritual items, repairs rosaries, and can even build a rosary out of your grandmother's jewelry. And if you're fortunate enough to shop at the Batesville, Indiana store, expect to get sprinkled with holy water on your way out. Connect and ask questions at St. Joseph Shop on Facebook. Welcome back, friends. You're listening to Vatican U from Breadbox Media. 
This is the Supernatural Reality Edition, where we're talking about sacred music and sacred art. Father Allen just gave us a two-minute drill that was probably more like a three-minute drill, but we won't hold that against him. Uh, yeah. There's a lot to, lot to cover in these uh, chapters, so uh, we're going to enter into our teaching segment here in a minute, and coming up in our next segment, we're going to play a new game. And then finally, you'll get to hear me have the last, last word. Or hear Father Chris eating licorice, one of the two. He's either eating licorice or he's chewing on bones. <laughs> and he's hit his mute button so he can't respond. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hit my mute button oh, because as I'm is. eating my kookaburra licorice, you guys are saying it sounds like I'm chewing on the actual birds. <laughs> so uh, just making sure that I hit the mute button. There. Yeah, it's good. It's good. We won't talk about what licorice tastes like because that's probably not suitable for, telev- or for <laughs> television or radio. <laughs> so, <Losers>. sacred music. <laughs> it's a good thing it's a radio show. Yeah. Because we all have faces for radio. We do. And it's a good thing it's recorded so we can edit out the things that shouldn't be played on the air. I bet we'd get more listeners if we played the entire recording, though. We might, but we might get changes in assignments from our bishops. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah. Well, our listeners may not know, and so just to give some some background, first of all, obviously, all four of us love the liturgy, and so starting with Sacrosanctum Concilium has been very good. But um, among the four of us, we do have one who is particularly gifted, not only in understanding and, and really loving sacred music, but one who is gifted as a as a minister of sacred music. And so uh, maybe it's appropriate to say, Father Jerry, is there something you want to say to get us started here and and uh, in appropriating what the council had to say to us? Uh, I Thank you, Father Allen, for that um, compliment that you gave me. There's, there's a lot that I would love to say. Um, <clears throat> really, as a pastor now, when I am beginning the celebration of Holy Mass... I'm listening to the music. I'm uh, oftentimes thinking about the connection that the text has with the liturgical action. And and that's one of the things that I really want my musicians to understand is that everything that we do in the liturgy needs to be connected. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like we're trying to plug little, you know, little holes. Do you guys remember um, a toy from probably back in the late 70s, early 80s called a light bright? I love the light bright. But... You remember the concept was you would plug the holes with the little, the little uh, clear, opaque, whatever, colored mm-hmm. pegs, and then you would create something. Well, I think a lot of times when we approach um, music in the liturgy, we're approaching it from that perspective. I have to plug this piece of music into this hole. Uh, you know, we have the the four hymn sandwich mass thing yeah. uh, that we got, um, <clears throat> but that's not really what the church envisions our liturgies to be like. It's not bad, but it's not the fullness of the the expression that that the council fathers were getting at. And I think the tendency is is like I said a second ago, it's to plug things into those little holes. Like here's the the opening song, or here's the offertory song or here's the communion song or here's the closing song that's not really i don't don't think this is my personal opinion here i'm not speaking as um 
I'm not speaking as one who has any kind of authority over this, but my personal opinion is when we approach uh, liturgical music from that perspective, we miss out on a wealth of of beautiful text and beautiful uh, melodic um, material that could really enhance our prayer um, yeah. using the introits, using the antiphons. Um, instead of singing at Mass, we are called to sing the Mass. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's right what they say in that very first paragraph, 112, talking about sacred music, that um, it has the pride of place higher than any other form of art in our liturgical expression because mm-hmm. it forms a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. You know, integral meaning it's not an isolated little little silo piece where now we're singing and then we stop. Integral meaning it's a, a fully integrated part of the whole. I think about Bob Ross's paintings and, you know, um, the happy tree that shows up somewhere, it, it shows up somewhere because it's part of the whole painting. And so if we think of the liturgy yeah. as one beautiful portrait, music comes and goes like colors in a painting, and it contributes like colors in a painting, not as a separate piece. Yeah, if we look at our brothers and sisters in the Eastern churches, and and we kind of compare and contrast how the divine... Um, you know the the divine liturgy versus the celebration of the mass you go to a divine liturgy and you're singing from the time you step into that until you walk out yeah and it's not that you're singing things at the liturgy but you're singing the liturgy mm-hmm. uh and you know we i think in the western church we've gotten into kind of some bad habits of just filling the gaps um instead of Utilizing what Mother Church has already given us to utilize with the text that's that we find in the the missal or in some of the the musical the official musical books of the church. It also points to that difference too between a minister of sacred music at mass who contributes to that overall portrait of the liturgy in the same way, for example, that a servant contributes to the overall portrait and the priest and the deacon and the people who are all ministers at mass. If they, if we all embrace our roles correctly, mm-hmm. but there's something different, very different between a minister of music and, and a performer of sacred music at the liturgy. You know, so often what I'm scared that's happening is people think, okay, now's the time for the choir to sing, so I'm going to listen to their performance. Now's the time for me to sing, so we're performing together, as opposed to it's a breathing in and breathing out as part of our expression of prayer together mm-hmm. in this one organic whole. Well, that's why there's such um, – I, well, let me rephrase that. That's why when when we have those moments at Mass, say the, the choir sings a beautiful – uh, piece of music and you know a lot of people's response to that is to do what it's to clap afterwards oh yeah and in that while that might seem like an affirming thing to do it really uh distracts and t- takes away from the liturgical action even if it's at the end of mass when we've said mass is ended go in peace and we're on our way out the atmosphere in the church needs not be it it shouldn't be um let's whoop and holler for the beautiful music that the choir performed for us but instead let's let our minds continue to be lifted up in prayer Mm -hmm. and let's thank god for the great gift of music that we've received Uh, pope benedict he he talked about 
um, how it's it's inappropriate for us to clap during the liturgy. There's only one time um, when it's appropriate to do that, and that's at the uh, the ordin- in the ordination rites when uh, the response of the people is that acclamation of applause when the man is chosen and he's set apart from the community and he is you know picked to be ordained into the the ministry of the priest like the applause of the people is kind of um the appropriate pro- place for that not you know uh we sing a really rousing rendition of gather us in so let's clap our hand- hands in joy mm. father chris father sean what are you all thinking and and being drawn to in this text personally i i love the phrase sing the mass rather than sing at the mass and I think that that captures so much where when we talk about uh, even the parts that reference Gregorian chant having a pride of place, we're not talking about this to an exclusion of hymns and popular songs, but, but both and. It has to fit in and flow through the Mass. It is singing the Mass. And the other thing that I think of when I hear the phrase sing the Mass, not sing at the Mass, is that in a lot of ways, that mindset starts with the priest. He has yeah. to sing, too. He has to mm-hmm. sing the dialogue parts. He has to be willing to do that, even if his voice isn't all that good. Like I've, like I've said to my parishioners, oh, I don't like to sing at Mass. I don't have a good voice. God gave you that voice. Make him listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Father Chris? Oh, I'd say I definitely, definitely agree with what's been said. You know, I think it's important for us to, again, just remember that you know the mass is something that is is obviously our source and summit as we've been talking about and also something that's obviously beautiful and so when we sing that it's not that we're oh we're kind of taking this little pause and we're going to listen to this song so much as it's a we're offering this song to god the song is part of our worship our singing is part of the worship so even you know, even as, as Father Sean mentioned, the singing the Mass parts and singing the Mass, not just singing at Mass, you know, that when we have those times where we have a song during, you know, the, the communion rite, for example, that even those things, though it's not singing something necessarily from the Missal, it's still singing the Mass. It's offering that praise and worship to God. Um, so that's kind of my little two cents there. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me through both of these last two chapters of the document is there's nothing that I heard that is unexpected, um, that's new really in the document. They've really taken the principles that they've laid down and discussed all before this and applied it to music and sacred art. So things need to be dignified. It's the whole organic faithful of people doing their part and only their part, but doing it together so that there's one integral whole. Full conscious and active participation is really important. It's just all that stuff applied to these two very important aspects of one integral whole. And it's just a beautiful thing to see that it really does all fit together. And that, friends, is the sound of Father Chris Molesky wrapping this segment. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Father Chris. <laughs> Un- unmute, unmute your mic. Oh, there we are. Well, friends, you're listening so intently to Vatican U that you forget to unhead, or unhit your mute button. Uh, <laughs> in just a bit, we'll come back with our two sides of the same coin. 
our brand new segment, which will definitely need more mute buttons and train wreck insurance and all of those things. <laughs> You're listening to Vatican U on Breadbox Media. We'll be right back. This podcast episode of Vatican U is brought to you by St. Joseph Shop of Batesville, Indiana. Find them on Facebook at St. Joseph Shop. St. Joseph Shop takes all recycled spiritual items, repairs rosaries, and can even build a rosary out of your grandmother's jewelry. And if you're fortunate enough to shop at the Batesville, Indiana store, expect to get sprinkled with holy water on your way out. Connect and ask questions at St. Joseph Shop on Facebook. Friends, welcome back to Vatican U Radio, a weekly walk through the teachings of the church. We don't know if you found us on the airwaves, iTunes, or through Breadbox Media, but we're very excited that you're with us today. Our edition is the Supernatural Realities edition. We're looking at the last section of the Second Vatican Council's document on sacred liturgy, dealing with music and art and all the things that have the highest potential of people's emotions getting twisted up. So we're hoping that we can navigate this these waters in such a way that we don't have to press the mute buttons too often or end up with an <laughs> unexpected change in assignment to a post office box somewhere in the hinterlands <laughs> of a diocese. Uh, so last segment, I, I think we had some, some great conversation about the teaching. We're going to pause on that for a minute, and we're going to introduce a, a new segment today that we're excited to bring to you called Two Sides of of the same coin. Father Chris, what is two sides of the same coin? Heads and tails. Right. <laughs> oh, see, Father Allen got it. We don't even need to talk about it. There you go. All right. Back to so, the document. Back to the document. No, uh, two sides of the same coin refers to the fact that two of us, Father Sean and myself, Father Chris, are cradle Catholics. And two of us, Father Allen and Father Jerry, are converts to the faith. So because of that, uh, we all have very different perspectives on the beauty and the richness and the life-changing grace of what it is to be Catholic. Um, so what we're offering is kind of this chance for us to talk from our different perspectives of even where we came into the church, either you know, at infancy or later in life, so maybe we can understand some things a little bit more deeply. And it's my understanding that this week, kind of what we're looking at is what I'll let Father Allen introduce that so he can have the other side of the coin right away. Well, but the first thing we've got to figure out is whose heads and whose tails. No, wait, let's don't do that. That's just gonna let's be not yeah. do that. <laughs> mute buttons, mute buttons. There we go. Guys. Okay. No, I think that we we decided this week what we do is look at the two different perspectives on the church calendar. Um, you know, the moving of a of a liturgical calendar and. And how that happens every year, and and just how we've approached that and experienced that, right? That's what we're going to talk about, fellas. Yes. yes. Good. So, what if we start with the folks that probably uh, recognized the church calendar first? Like, I, you know, I bumped into it uh, at, at thirty years old, well, at twenty years old almost, and and uh, Father Chris and Father Sean, it was something that you guys bumped into, perhaps bumped into or became aware of uh, earlier in life. Well, the reason why I was thinking that this might be a good thing for us to introduce on this show is because, as many of our listeners are aware, uh, we just began the season of Advent, and there's a lot of traditions around Advent, the Advent wreath that we have at church, Advent wreaths that we have in our homes. And for me growing up, 
the whole season of Advent and Christmas was really important time for, for my family. My, my mom loves this time of year, uh, all the way from Halloween through New Year's. I mean, she just, all these different holidays and feast days, she, she just really loves them. It was a really powerful thing for me growing up. So, so every time Advent rolls around, I think about, as a very young child, uh, the Advent wreath came out. It was set on the dining room table, and every evening as we were having family dinner, because we had we had dinner as a family every night, except maybe a little bit later when it on Boy Scout night things got a little hairy on getting everybody fed and off to their various Boy Scout meetings. But most of every other night it was family dinner, and we would always have some devotions that would go with that, with lighting the Advent wreath, and of course, Mom brought out one of those little candle lighters and sniffers, a little brass miniature one, like what you would see at church. And my brothers and I would always argue about who gets to light the candle, who gets to put it out. And those are all part of the memories for me. But one of the things that, that I, that I think I want to get a perspective of somebody who's a later convert, because we grew up celebrating Advent. It was really important for us that our Christmas decorations were not put up early. It was a really important thing for, for my mom and my dad that we celebrated Advent as Advent and we celebrated Christmas as Christmas. So we did not have our Christmas decorations set up in our own home until just a couple of days before Christmas, something that my mom grew up with. And it, it's something that they've passed on to me that I don't have any Christmas decorations up in the rectory and, and I won't until it gets real close to Christmas so that we can focus on Advent. And I'm curious as to know, are those people, especially Father Chris and, or Father Alan and Father Jerry, who didn't grow up with a liturgical calendar, was, was that as big of a deal for you growing up? Or did you not have Advent? Or, or what was that like? But for, for me, it was definitely liturgical seasons did sort of guide and, and, and sort of not, not govern, but guide what we did as a family in our own devotions and our own decorations and celebrations. I can tell you, you know, from my perspective, I, somebody said one time, did you ever celebrate Advent? And I'm like, well, we did things that were Advent-like, but we didn't, first of all, in our family, we didn't know it was Advent. We certainly were preparing for Christmas and looking forward to Christmas, though. And and that seemed to be a part that even not having grown up in the Catholic Church or a church that had a liturgical calendar, it was something that was, um, I think, a part of our experience just by virtue of recognizing the religious and spiritual importance of Christmas. Now, you know, we, we very often decorated much earlier than Christmas, and I still do even in the rectory. The, the, the flip side of the coin for me has been, as I've come to appreciate Advent and the, the concentric circles around which it helps us to prepare for the coming of the Lord, right? You know, it, to prepare for the coming of Christ at the first Christmas so that we are more encountering um, what Christmas means again this year and preparing for the coming of Christ at the end of time so that we're more prepared for that and also preparing for the way he's coming every day. I, I try to build that into the way that I celebrate the lead up to Christmas with my family. I'm still the only Catholic in the family. So, you know, for example, one year I gave mom and grandma little uh, nativity scenes for Christmas, little small ones that I got in Guatemala and encouraged them to build that by adding little pieces as Christmas went along. Uh, and I try to do that in, in my rectory. So if I put up a tree, I don't turn on the lights before the second or third Sunday of Advent, and I don't let them be colored lights until later. And you know, when do I put up the other things? It was a shock to me, though, to know that there was a specific liturgical communal movement toward Christmas. And I loved it. You know, the first time I saw an Advent wreath, I'm like, oh, what a neat idea to get ready for Christmas. And I lit all four of the candles. 
And, and my Catholic friends were like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know? And then the second, I think the second time when I realized it, I'm like, ooh, I like the pink one. Let's do the pink one first. Or the pink one has to be, you know, for Christmas or whatever. So it's, it was nice to, I, I guess I had the, the benefit of getting fed Advent in bite-sized chunks at a time, which is probably really not that different from the cradle experience. I was just older and very often bumping into the bite-sized chunks out of embarrassment or having done it wrong. <laughs> but yeah. Well, you can, be a, you can be a cradle Catholic and still get it wrong. For a long time when I was very young, uh, we didn't realize that the rose-colored candle was on the third Sunday of Advent um, because the priest didn't exercise the option of wearing the rose-colored vestments on the third Sunday of Advent. So oh. we... We just lit it on the fourth Sunday because, oh, it's the last one. It's the candle that's different. So we were cradle Catholics, and we missed that one for several years. Mm. But we never lit all four on the first week, though. <laughs> I just thought you lit them all all <laughs> That's <week>. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. How about the other two sides of the same coin, Father Chris and Father Jerry? Well, I'll kind of jump in there um, because my family growing up, even though I grew up a cradle Catholic, was itself kind of a hybrid family. Uh, my mom actually is a convert and my dad's a cradle Catholic. Um, so I think some of the, the things that Father Sean and Father Alan, you were talking about were kind of some things that we tried to bring up too. Uh, we certainly knew how to operate the Advent wreath. Um, we had a, um, a beautiful, a beautiful Advent calendar, uh, which was made by a family member. So there was a day for each or a, a little piece for each day of the month in, in Advent there, and you'd flip it over, and it would kind of progressively make the nativity scene. So, you know, you flipped over the first day, and it's a little palm tree, and you flip over the second day, and it's a little sheep. Um, so by the time you got to the 25th day of December, you'd flip it over, and there was the baby Jesus. So we kind of had that progression um, also, but it was very, very hard um to not set up all of our Christmas decorations right away. Um, that was kind of something that my mom was always kind of on top of. And I think she, probably because she knew that my dad and my brother and I really wouldn't get to it if she didn't kind of poke us a little bit. So we'd kind of get mm. everything set up and ready to go. So uh, so that was kind of my understanding of things. But, but I, I'd say it was very... Um, very clear. I think part of the, the richness of maybe the point of this whole segment is um, because my dad was a cradle Catholic and my mom was a convert, there was a lot of a, an effort growing up from as young as my brother and I could remember um, to really explain everything that was going on and tell us why it was happening. My mom, because she had it for herself, and my dad, because he realized, well, maybe everybody completely understands this, probably because of some of the things my mom did when they were dating. Mm, nice. You know, Maybe lighting all that and raise. It happened long before I lit all the candles and my dad freaked out. Who knows? <laughs> Father Bird, what was it like for you to begin to uh, you know, enter into the reality of a liturgical calendar, and, and uh, especially with Advent? Growing up, I, I had a, an experience similar to yours, Father Allen. We didn't have <clears throat> liturgical seasons. Uh, we didn't celebrate Advent or Lent or any of those kind of things, and certainly didn't have... Um, advent calendars or uh, advent candles. Um, so uh, becoming Catholic, that whole liturgical calendar thing was a new, um, a, a new thing to embrace. But it was it was a beautiful thing. Uh, it made sense to me. Um, as far as like putting up the Christmas decorations, I remember that we would kind of have the tradition that 
after the day after Thanksgiving, we would put up the Christmas tree in the house and gradually, not all at one time, but we would gradually kind of get all the decorations out and get the house ready for Christmas. But as soon as Christmas was over, that stuff got packed away. So yeah, I didn't really say, celebrate this season. Um, yeah. That's one thing that I've had to really stretch with, at least even personally, is I have this real movement for me to Christmas to be over after, like immediately after Christmas. And, and uh, you know, it's important to extend and celebrate the Christmas season. But that's one place where the two sides of the same coin, I think, in, at least today, struggle in the same way, is to embrace that whole uh, breadth of the Christmas season and let it extend as far mm-hmm. as it should go. And well, right. you know, we were worried that maybe there wouldn't be enough to enjoy in this segment, but I think um, I think it's been a really good discussion, and we've eaten up our complete third segment with this two sides of the same coin. And so we'll, we'll uh, do this segment again in the future as it makes sense, and hopefully that helps all of our listeners have a better appreciation for the beauty and richness of the church in the ways that it can be appropriated differently from those who are credo Catholics and those who are uh, converts to the faith. Friends, you're still listening to Vatican U, or at least we think you are and hope that you are. We'll be right back. This podcast episode of Vatican U is brought to you by St. Joseph Shop of Batesville, Indiana. Find them on Facebook at St. Joseph Shop. St. Joseph Shop takes all recycled spiritual items, repairs rosaries, and can even build a rosary out of your grandmother's jewelry. And if you're fortunate enough to shop at the Batesville, Indiana store, expect to get sprinkled with holy water on your way out. Connect and ask questions at St. Joseph Shop on Facebook. Welcome back to our Supernatural Reality Edition of Vatican U. Now you get to listen to us as we kind of wrap up and get it at what we think about sacred music, art and furnishings, and all those things we read about in paragraphs 112 and 130. You know, Father Allen, what do you think you can take for real life from the things we've talked about, about music and art and furnishings? You know, I want to be really cognizant. I think Father Sean did a good job of saying, and, and we can all appreciate this, that it is because we love the liturgy so much that things like our furnishings and our music and even what we do um, through the whole fabric of the liturgy can be very emotionally charged. I think the first thing that's a real-life application that we can all do is understand when emotions get high and 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 the conversations can feel like they're challenging conversations around these things. It's because everybody involved in the conversation loves the liturgy, and that is a good place that we're all coming from. And so what I have to try to do sometimes when I'm engaged in those conversations is take a moment to realize that what's making me feel passionate is a good thing. It's my love of the liturgy. And what's making the other person that I'm conversing with feel passionate is their love of the liturgy too. And from that commonplace, if we can recapture that commonplace, the conversations move forward. Good stuff. Something that that I was kind of thinking about as you were speaking, we we kind of zeroed in on on the music part of it as we went through this, but segment also dealt with the furnishings and the art in the church. And I think that we've gone through some some pretty big cultural shifts over the last um, thirty forty years, and we went from churches that were that were very ornate, um, and and then we went into a, a period where churches were were kind of desolate. But then, then I think we're in a space now where we're starting to recover some of that, and and I think that it's a good a good place for us to be to recognize that um, that you know perhaps 
some of the ornateness from the past might have been a little bit overdone, but certainly the starkness that would have been from churches built around the, when I was growing up, that that was a little bit too extreme too. And now we're trying to we're we're in we're moving into this middle ground. I think that that is is much more balanced, and and much more uh, able to be appreciated by people when they see that there's a certain level of ornateness and dignity to it. It doesn't look like a like a like a gym when you're walking in, but it it, it also doesn't necessarily need to look like some of the s- sort of dirty dark uh, chapels from the Holy Land that that nobody's ever allowed to take anything out. So over the mm-hmm. centuries, just more and more and more and more gets added. Yeah, and the real nice space in between the two, trying to make sure, I think a practical real-life thing is we don't necessarily have to swing the spectrum back or forward in as big of an arc as it has swung before. We can try to find the mind of the church in integrating the teaching of the council. You know, I think about the, the Newman Center here, which in its structure came from a period of time that does have sort of that sparse kind of design to itself, but over time we've reintroduced things like sacred images and beautiful artwork, incredible artwork, in a way of trying to embrace the broader tradition without necessarily starting from scratch. And and that's a good real-life example that we can all try to use. We don't have to swing from one side to the other. We can try to find a way of of living in this place that um, that's in the tension between so many different things where the heart of the church is. Absolutely. I think the practical uh, application really is we have to have the mindset that the liturgy is something other. It's not entertainment. It's not like the things that we do on a regular basis. Even though we regularly do liturgy, we regularly celebrate Mass, we regularly participate in those things, it's something that is not the ordinary thing. And when Mm. we begin to treat it like it's the ordinary thing, when we expect that the music we hear at Mass is going to be just like what I hear in the car, Mm -hmm. then we lose a sense of the sacred. Our worship of God is not, it's to be something other than uh, what we do in the rest of our time, the rest of our lives. It needs to be other. Mm -hmm. And the liturgy is provided for that. So I think, I mean, I could, I could list off all kinds of things that, that I really, um, that I would really like to say, but really to sum it up, the liturgy is not ours, number one, it's God's. And number two, the way that we participate in it is supposed to direct us to God and not to ourselves. Mm. And that's what the council fathers are getting at. The the art, the decoration, the vestments, the music, the the candles, the stone, the wood, whatever it is that we're using in that can be used to glorify God. But it's to glorify God, not to make us feel warm and fuzzy or to make us necessarily feel anything. Nice, nice. It's been a really good show, guys. I mean, I think um, you know we covered a lot of material here, and I really do encourage everybody who's listening to to pull out the document and read it, and especially these last two chapters. Uh, we've come to the place where it's time for our last words. Now, just so our listeners aren't worried, this is not necessarily our last words on the whole document. Coming up in following weeks, we'll have a Sacrosanctum Concilium wrap-up show where we kind of look at the whole document altogether. But for this week, Father Sean has the first last word on music, art, and furnishings. Father Sean, what's your what's your last word this week? Based on the things that we've said, it might be a little bit hard for some people to appreciate these sections of the document because 
they may not be priests, they may not be involved in their parish overseeing music or art. So I want to speak to you about this for just for my last word here real briefly. If you don't have a way to influence this or be involved in it in your parish, these things can still apply to you. There are many devout Catholics I know that have set up a small space in their home where they call it their chapel. It could be just their comfortable chair in the corner, or it could be a dedicated room, or it could be uh, a small segment of their bedroom. And you might want to look at the role of art and music in your quote-unquote little personal chapel area. So two things real briefly. What sort of sacred images do you have that you can look at while you're praying? Do you have an image of Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart? Do you have a crucifix? Do you have an image of your patron saint? So those are a couple things to think about on the art side of it. On the music side of it, I would really encourage you to consider finding some good recordings of sacred Catholic music. Here's why. I know several people personally who, to their advantage, have been able to start their time in personal prayer by listening to some music or having it on quietly in the background while they're praying. And it creates a, a sacred place that 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 allows them to enter into a time of prayer uh, very fruitfully. So just because you can't influence or are not actively involved in in picking the music or the furnishings at church doesn't mean that these things don't apply to you. They can be very helpful for you in your own personal devotional life. After all, a home in which a Catholic lives in should look like a Catholic home. So walk around your house and ask yourself, if somebody walked into your house, would they know that a Catholic lived in this house? Would they see evidence in the environment in which you live? And that might be a good way to, to recognize that these things are important even in our own lives. Sorry, that was a really long last word, but... Uh, I'll claim that in some of my real-life segment time, too. <laughs> very good, Sean. Very good. Thanks. Uh, Father Chris, I think you have the second last word. What do you have for us this week? Well, I don't even know how to follow that, because that <laughs> was fantastic, Father Sean. Um, I'm, just supposed to, I'm just supposed to say that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll echo what Father Sean said, and that, you know, I always tell um, married couples as they're getting ready to get married, that they should have uh, something in their home to remind of them of who they are and what they're about. Um, but also that reminder uh, goes to something that Father Jerry said, that we're really meant as Catholics to be in the world, but not of it. So that the music, that the art, that the, those other things are supposed to lift our eyes uh, up into the world that is to come, uh, the kingdom that is to come. Um, and just while I completely agree with everything Father Sean said. That's my last word. Nice. Yeah, I've got the third last word, and I think uh, the first thing I want to do is piggyback on what Father Jerry said about the liturgy, especially being a place of other, right? It's it's designed to engage us in the transcendent reality, even in the middle of being uh, living everyday lives. And, you know, people always say, what is it that seems to be attracting young people to liturgy? And I know from working here on UK's campus, they're attracted to mystery, which is that thing that that steps into that nexus of time and space and this reality, the next reality, and heaven and earth and all that. And I think that for my last word, then paragraph 127 of the document gives us these four uh, characteristics that we can use both in designing our sacred spaces at home, but certainly in our in our liturgies, and that is that everything about the liturgy, including music, art, and architecture, should be used for worship. It should be designed so that it edifies the faithful. 
it should foster our piety and be conducive to our religious formation. And if we think about the pieces of art that we buy for our homes or even the ways that we encounter music and art and furnishings in our church according to those four things, it will lift our hearts to the other and be an encountering of mystery. And that, after all, is what liturgy is all about. There's my last word. Father Jerry, you've got this week's last, last word. What are you doing with that? Mm. Hopefully not climbing up on another soapbox. <laughs> you know, I I just want to uh, I just want to reiterate everything that you guys have said. Um, it's beautiful, actually, to to hear your thoughts on this, and and I want to take that and say, you know, when we enter into the liturgy, if we're singing, if we're we're meditating, if we're kind of looking at and pondering the beautiful artwork, the stained glass windows, the the spires on the high altar, or the stone tiles on the floor. All of this comes together to help us enter into that relationship with the Lord. And we have to step outside of ourselves to really experience it. When we are focused on ourselves and what I can get out of Mass, then we're not really going to get much out of it. Mm-hmm. But when we focus on what can I give— and how can I participate, and how can I be active, then we're really worshiping. Whether that's with a tambourine or a guitar or a pipe organ or Gregorian chant or a piece of contemporary music, our hearts are lifted up when we're outside of ourselves and we're approaching the Father and we're approaching the sacred mysteries and we're, we're trying to live in that. Well, friends, thanks for joining with us again this week. As you can tell, each of the four of us are very passionate about this topic, and we've had a lot of fun. You can find our show and uh, many other great shows at breadboxmedia.com. We look forward to being with you soon. Please be sure to spread the word about our show. Thanks for listening. God bless you. See you next week. This podcast episode of Vatican U is brought to you by St. Joseph Shop of Batesville, Indiana. Find them on Facebook at St. Joseph Shop. St. Joseph Shop takes all recycled spiritual items, repairs rosaries, and can even build a rosary out of your grandmother's jewelry. And if you're fortunate enough to shop at the Batesville, Indiana store, expect to get sprinkled with holy water on your way out. Connect and ask questions at St. Joseph Shop on Facebook.